Hello and welcome to Open Source Underdogs, the podcast about successful open source business models. I'm your host, Mike Schwartz, and this is episode 32 with Boris Rensky, co-founder and CMO of Morantis. This episode highlights how sometimes you have to pivot when your market reality changes, in their case, away from managing virtual machines and towards containers and Kubernetes. Without further ado, let's let Boris tell the story in his own words. Boris, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. The Morantis website says, take back control of your container infrastructure. Keeping in mind that this is a podcast for business people, can you help explain what that means? Basically, uh, as anybody uh, living in the open source world today would uh, attest to, there is a lot of talk about doing hybrid cloud using containers and Kubernetes. And this is one of the kind of most common waves that is happening right now, at least when it comes to cloud infrastructure. And one of the things that uh, typically happens in hybrid cloud is that you need to find a way to very cost efficiently run Kubernetes container-based infrastructure on-premises. And the problem with uh, Kubernetes and containers in general is that this is a cloud-first, cloud-native technology that was initially adopted by developers who were building containerized apps and running them in the public cloud. And in the public cloud, a lot of the uh, low-level infrastructure constructs are solved for you. So you don't need to ever wire up the servers together. You don't really need to connect the storage and deploy your custom storage enterprise solutions, etc. It's all there. It's all within an API call. So now, with containers becoming a mainstream fabric for building applications and running hybrid applications, the problem of cost-effectively running them on-premises is becoming increasingly more acute. And the most common solution to that is to run them on top of some sort of virtualization layer, like VMware, for instance, which makes things simpler, but... It adds a layer of complexity, and it also adds cost. So what we ultimately do is we enable companies to run hybrid cloud infrastructure with the on-premise piece, the containerized on-premise piece, running directly on bare metal, leveraging exclusively open standards, um, and we do it in a very cost-efficient fashion. Okay. So Morantis is in a fast-evolving sector, to say the least. And you've had to pivot a few times along the way. Can you talk about those pivots and why they were necessary and how they worked out? We're kind of an atypical startup, I would say, because most startups that you would see coming out of the valley is a couple of smart guys that built some cool open source software that has become popular. They've gotten some VC funding and uh off they go, and you know, hopefully they built a company out of it and maybe exit it or maybe not. Our story is a bit different in that we're actually been around for a while, been around for over 10 years. And the story of Mirantis is that of a continuous evolution and continuous pivoting. So I started, I think it was a 2002 timeframe, shortly after I moved here from Moscow. I started doing something that I would argue, you know, every other Russian with IT background tends to do, and that is sell Russian engineering talent to Silicon Valley-based companies. 
I guess, not so much through my personal talents, but through some degree of luck and the fact that I was able to find a very talented group of engineers, I was able to scale that company to about 50 people. And in 2006, merge it with another company that was doing pretty much the same thing. And this is how Mirantis was formed back in 2006. It was myself, my partner at the time, Alex Friedland, and this company of about 100 people altogether that was just kind of a generic software outsourcing. And shortly after the merger, I would argue this was uh, the point of kind of the first pivot to your question, because uh, it was clear that just doing generic, you know, selling of engineering talent at the scale of 100 people is not something that you can build a huge company out of. So it was clear that we needed to specialize. And we had at the time already a bunch of customers that we were doing some infrastructure stuff for. So for example, Cisco was a customer for whom we're doing some hardcore networking stuff at the time. And this was, uh, you know, 2006, the time of cloud and kind of this infrastructure cloud revolution. So we started moving in the direction of just cloud infrastructure. And we started playing with everything that's hot out there big data, all the different open source cloud technologies. But in general, we moved from being completely generic to being more specialized. But we stayed, uh, as far as our value proposition, focused on just services. And then we, I think, spent probably uh, like four years or so in this configuration, slowly growing the business. And then when the cloud became mainstream, again, we're doing a whole bunch of stuff. So we figured we need to kind of specialize further. And we need to just pick you know, one area. We can't just be doing cloud and big data and everything that one can find. So we decided to focus on cloud and specifically on a technology that was kind of up and coming and cool at the time called OpenStack, which I'm sure you've heard of. And at the same time, still stick to the uh, kind of value proposition around services. No products, just selling services. So this was, uh, I guess, the second pivot. The first pivot was from generic kind of software to cloud infrastructure. Second pivot from kind of generic cloud infrastructure, systems integration, to focusing on specifically kind of OpenStack and OpenStack adjacent open source projects. And I think probably it was a year or two years in that mode that we ran. And we were actually able to ramp quite a bit. And I would say that the reason for that ramp is because unlike anybody else in the space who was trying to immediately build a leveraged business model around OpenStack at the time, we were just selling people. So we were just selling services. And we're the only guys that were in town doing OpenStack services and and doing it in a very competent fashion. And of course, most of the large companies adopting new open source technology they kind of tend to shy away from startups and products in the early days until the winner emerges. So they all came to us to actually, you know, build some bespoke solution using either OpenStack or some, you know, OpenStack adjacent technology, like let's say something like, for example, Ceph or OpenContrail, because there's a lot of other open source projects you need to stitch together whenever you build infrastructure. And that was an, another like you know next wave of growth, so to speak, that took us to the next level. The uh, third pivot was actually um, trying to introduce elements of a leveraged business model. So this happened already, I think, in maybe 2012, 2013 timeframe. We were already a kind of a, a pretty popular 
open source infrastructure and OpenStack specifically SI at a time. And what we did is uh, we basically uh, started trying to look for kind of patterns of commonalities between all of the different projects that we'd implement. A lot of them were very different, but some of them had a lot in common. So we've basically built this kind of a, a library that gathered a list of the different configurations, the common configurations for deploying on-premise cloud infrastructure. In plain words, it was just you know a bunch of puppet libraries at the same time, like puppet scripts. And we started collecting it internally at first for just being able to deliver services more effectively to our customers. And then I think 2013 timeframe, we actually open sourced it and made it publicly available and said, okay, we now have this set of uh, puppet scripts effectively for deploying OpenStack and OpenStack adjacent projects that everybody can use. And if you're within those configurations, if you're deploying using the scripts, these specific configurations will be able to actually go ahead and provide some sort of SLA support for you. So that was a third pivot from just pure focused OpenStack services to monetizing support SLA around it. And the fourth pivot was kind of a, both from the process and uh, I would say technology-focused standpoint. So between, I think, 2013-2014 timeframe, where we emerged as this OpenStack implementation and support vendor, up until, I would say, 2018-17 timeframe, we've been focusing on, first of all, evolving this leveraged business model. So basically, moving our support from just supporting, from just providing kind of like a initial response and ongoing SLA to more of like an uptime SLA. So moving up the value stack and uh, adjusting our business processes accordingly um, and therefore being able to extract more margin from the customers we already have. And the second vector of evolution was around the technology itself because obviously the world has kind of moved on to containers and Kubernetes. VMs and on-prem VM orchestration has become more of a commodity. So we started building more and more competence around that and moving our product from being exclusively focused on just VM orchestration on-prem to basically a container orchestration on-prem and, and hybrid cloud using containers and Kubernetes. And I would say that probably we are 80% of the way through our fourth big evolution at this point and looking forward to the fifth one. A very long answer to, to the question you asked, but that's kind of, you know, that's, that's been the long and winding journey for us, you know, evolving the business model. So there are, there are 200 plus repositories in the Mirantis GitHub. Are there any themes in, those, in the software and which are the most important software projects for your business model? Yeah, it's a good question. I think out of 200, only a fraction of them is active and alive because 200, this is like from when we started. And then, you know, the repos we tend to commit more to and then the kind of spikes and then it goes into the maintenance mode or it just goes away. I wouldn't say there's just like one repo that's the most important one, but there's a collection of repos, but all of them are around a theme of lifecycle management of the software. So we have this component to our product, Mirantis Cloud Platform, called Drivetrain. Back in the day, it was extremely unique, but now it's more kind of mainstream. Is a system for 
managing the life cycle of a distributed system using continuous delivery approach. What that means is that for the private cloud or you know the hybrid cloud even that we deploy for the customer, every single service, every single component we treat is treated as an atomic element and we separate the binaries and the configuration and we codify workflow for updating each one of these components using a continuous delivery pipeline. And drivetrain is a system that makes basically all this magic happen. The core problem that this ultimately solves is basically keeping the many components of a distributed system up to date for the customer in a very seamless and non-disruptive fashion. Because in our view, the biggest disruption that cloud brings to the table is the fact that you don't really need to care about the life cycle of the infrastructure software anymore. So if you get it from AWS, it's just there, and they release new versions seamlessly and new services, and you can just start using them. You don't need to go through the upgrade cycle. So the whole big problem that we were focused on solving back from the OpenStack days is how do we do that same thing only not for the public cloud environment, but for the hybrid cloud and specifically for the on-premise piece of it. And all of that really is you know, aggregated under this project called Drivetrain, which consists of probably several dozen repos. And this is where we probably do most of our R&D and, and, and hard work. So hopefully that answers it. Are Morantis engineers the majority of contributors to these projects? The short answer is yes, but I want to qualify that a little bit. So when we build a hybrid cloud environment for the customer, typically there are kind of a common upstream components like Kubernetes, like Ironic for bare metal management, like Contrail or Calico for networking, Ceph for storage, etc. And those are really what I would call pure open source projects with large community around them, where Marantis is just one of the contributors, and we package them and we deliver them. And then there is a number of components, like, for instance, Drivetrain, that glue these things together. And when it comes to the glue part, it's mostly Marantis contributors with some of outside community consisting of our customers or maybe just users outside of Marantis. So do you think that open source software development has materially contributed to the business model? Well, I mean, the whole company, the the entire business model revolves around delivering open source infrastructure software to customers in a cost-efficient and simple-to-consume fashion. So the answer is absolutely yes. I mean, we are, our entire business model is predicated on being part of the open source community and taking the software that we help build in the open to our customers. But it sounds like some of those components, if you change the license on them, would customers really care? And if they're mostly Marantis engineers working on them, so I, I guess I'm wondering, yes, sure, for the you're deploying a whole stack of open source, and that's hugely valuable. But I'm wondering about for the software development activity at Marantis, do you think it being open source really makes a difference? It's a good question. So 
I think the answer to that question is still yes, to a large extent. It has to do with the fact that uh, one of the big advantages that we bring to the table and one of the big things that we do that a lot of the competitors don't do is uh, we allow our customers to take complete control over the infrastructure that we deliver for them as an option through what we refer to as a build-operate-transfer model. And because our customers are large telcos and large enterprise, being able to have that option and being able to actually operate the infrastructure that, that we've delivered for them independently at some point in time down the road is very important. And having an Apache 2 permissive software license is instrumental for that happening. Because if we have some sort of license that requires them to pay fees or limits them from doing whatever they want with the software, it weakens the value proposition behind the build operate transfer model. Part of this process used in complex systems, like Toshiba builds a subway system for some country, they operate it for a period of time and then they hand it over. But I've never actually heard this used in IT, build, operate, transfer. I'm wondering, has this approach been successful and what did you learn along the way when you delivered that? Yeah, so it it definitely has been working for us. One thing that we have learned is um, that I guess the promise of the transfer is probably more important than actually doing the transfer. I would say that less than 20% of the customers that we do actually go ahead through with the transfer. Most of them just prefer to kind of have that as an option in the contract should you know the situation change. It is common in the pockets of the IT industry. And the reason actually, uh, again, why we are able to do it and why we've been offering it is because one of the pockets of the IT industry where it's common is exactly uh, like IT staff outsourcing. So back in the day, during you know this pre-first pivot story of Mirantis that I told you, what we do, I just mentioned we'd sell talented engineers to the Silicon Valley companies, but the way we do it is uh, we'd propose the same exact build operate transfer model in that we'd staff an R&D center that is offshore for the customer. We would basically implement customers' business process and culture in the offshore center. We'd run it for them, and then we'd give them an option to actually buy it out and take over and what they have their own offshore center. And that's extremely common in that segment. And when it comes to building hybrid cloud infrastructure, it's kind of not that different because it is a big complicated thing. It is a lot of it is about actually implementing the process and not just the software. So you need to have the people that know the organization, that know the change management process for updating the software that know the existing systems that the customer has. So it's not just like, here's a piece of software, go use it. It's it's a big kind of a cultural transformation in a lot of cases. So we have the roots of doing that back in the IT staffing industry. And we're basically been able to transfer some of that to actually the notion of building hybrid clouds and implementing all the necessary kind of a culture and process associated with that. When you transfer the, let's say, the operation to the customer, do you still offer to transfer some of the resources? Some, yes. 
Some, yes, but it's a little bit different from the previous example where I told you where it's just primarily the people that you transfer. Here, it's a little bit more software and, and process biased. So typically, um, you maybe transfer a few people, but most of the time, it's the people that the customer already has. And it's kind of like when we start this process, typically, we, we would require that a customer would dedicate a number of people that would be effectively integrated into our ops team and will help run that hybrid environment that we are to leave behind. So in a way, you could say that we transfer people. It's just that they were on the customer's payroll day one. It's just that, you know, for a period of about six months, they were effectively operating as an integrated part of our team. But then they get transferred back under the customer's operational management. So for customers who've transferred off, do they continue to renew their software subscription? And I'm wondering about how your renewal rate is for those customers. Yeah, it's a good question. So the renewal rate is pretty good. And um, we uh, look at the software subscription as kind of like a spectrum. So if you look at our subscription business, we have three offerings within the portfolio. Ops care, prod care, and lab care, we call them. So the ops care is typically the tier that the customers start with before they have transferred any of the operations in-house. And at that level, we give the customer an uptime SLA on the environment. And it's our team in collaboration with the customer's team that is following our process that is actually delivering on that SLA. And then the one down from that, uh, ProdCare, is more kind of a resembling of a typical software subscription that you'd get from somebody like Red Hat or Canonical, where we basically give an SLA on the uh, you know, initial and ongoing response time and provide customer to the continued access to like bug fixes and patches and things like that. And then lab care is the lowest level where basically it's kind of like eight by five. You just get barely any access to the support line, but you still get access to the software updates. And if there's any severity of one issue that you encounter, you know, we are responsible for producing a patch within a certain given time and giving you the update. Most of the customers that we see go through the build, operate, transfer cycle, they would start on ops care and then they would downgrade to prod care and then eventually lab care. But I think there's only been a couple of instances where they went ahead and just completely disconnected and did not even do lab care at all. And I would argue that probably those are the instances where they just decided to discontinue the cloud or they just did a different direction or something like this. So most of the time they downgrade the subscription, but they don't, they don't move away from the subscription altogether. Obviously, I've been used to building some of the team offshore. I'm wondering about what's your current strategy for building the team? Do you have a, a central sort of headquarters and do you look to hire regionally? Is it very global? Like, How do you meet the new demand? So this is, uh, again, you know, one of the things that it's kind of like it's been a hidden strength of the company, given our history that I've described back in the day, core value proposition being building these distributed teams. The uh, area that we focus on kind of building up is continuously changing, depending on 
the you know opportunity and market conditions. One of the big value propositions is cost efficiency. We are able to deliver that cost efficiency in part through having access to the global talent pool. We have a tad over 500 people in the company, and those people are distributed across about seven locations. So our HQ is in the Bay Area, in the Silicon Valley, but we have an office in Austin where we do a lot of support. We have an office in Poland. We have an office in China. We have an office in Ukraine, we have an office in Germany, basically all over the place. And the way we figure out where kind of staff up is, you know, it's it's kind of continuously reevaluated. So I can just give you an example. For instance, one of our competitors back in the day was Rackspace. And Rackspace is known to have a lot of good support people because their core value prop was its fanatical support. So they've gone for some private equity acquisitions and restructurings and things like that. And they reprioritize some of the business directions, which, making a long story short, made it possible for us to go ahead and hire a lot of the people that were kind of like a fallout of this reorganization in Austin, Texas area, because this is where a lot of their support people were. So we did kind of this like blitz campaign and then we've built up a bunch of people in Austin to do the operations and support. And these kind of opportunities, they continuously come around and we try to kind of recalibrate and we try to put emphasis on hiring in one area versus the other, depending on the situation is. What do you think are the biggest challenges for open source software startups today? I can only competently speak to the challenges in the uh, infrastructure space, which is where we're focused on. And I think that the biggest challenge is figuring out the monetization strategy. So and by that, I mean, because software is free, open source in the infrastructure space can be one of two things. It can be either a way to decrease your spend on R&D and leverage an ecosystem that, you know, you can basically deliver a particular platform more cost-effectively than you know, proprietary alternatives because other people are building that software that you're then reselling. Or even more commonly, it's kind of like a marketing vehicle that, that will pull through some other value proposition. So back in the OpenStack days, OpenStack was super hot. Everybody wanted it. So it was your way to get into an account and kind of see if you can spread your wings there. Now it's more kind of like Kubernetes and serverless and things like that. So you can grab onto Knative or Kubernetes or some of those hot projects and pick the interests of the enterprise and then get in there. So it's a way to decrease your marketing and sales costs. The software itself is free and you can use it to do one of those two things, but you can't really make money on the software itself. There has to be something else that, that you're selling. And that something else can be a data center space and hardware, which is what basically public cloud providers do. People say that AWS is the most successful open source company out there because they built a $25 billion business by taking open source components and layering them as a, as a way to sell commodity data center and hardware with, at a high margin. So in case of Red Hat, for instance, they, they sell support SLA, which is a more common common approach, but that kind of boils down to selling people to a large extent. There's other models there where you can sell, you know, hardware appliances, 
Like a good example of that, I think, is Nutanix, where they've used a lot of the open source components to build their solution, but ultimately they're kind of pushing appliances as is their main thing when they're starting out. Figuring out what that thing is and understanding why you're better at actually uh, you know, being able to deliver on that other thing than, than others is core. Like For us at Marantis, we were able to get some degree of success because we were always very good at selling people. And when we layered things like OpenStack and Kubernetes on top of that, that made it easier for us and more cost-effective to sell these people because we were kind of like getting pulled through by, by those projects being hot and we were able to monetize this, this people thing. For public cloud, it's hardware and, and data center. So the question is like, what is it going to be for you that you're going to be selling? Because for sure, it's not going to be the software itself. Any advice for the people, the entrepreneurs who are starting these companies? Because you've had a couple of entrepreneurial experiences so just wondering if you have any closing advice for those poor souls. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that uh, if you're starting a company in the open source infrastructure space, I think you have to make a decision early on as to what your play is. And there are generally two types of plays. You can either focus on some important industry-focused or vertically-focused value proposition and build up a, a long-lasting business around it. And you can make that decision like day one, in which case you should not tie yourself to any particular open source project or wave, but just focus on open source as a, as a way of potentially decreasing your expenditures on, on R&D and just stick to that strategy. Or alternatively, you can say that you know it's going to be a two, three-year play and I'm going to ride a wave. I'm going to ride like a Kubernetes wave like what Heptio did. And the latter is actually, uh, I would say, the play of the 80% of the VC-backed startups today. And I think that you need to be uh, very conscious of what your play is and, and stick to it. What you don't want to do is kind of try and, and, and mix in between the two. And I would argue that we at Marint is kind of, uh, for a period of time, were a little bit confused about, is it like, are we uh, like an... OpenStack company, or are we uh, an on-premise infrastructure company? I think being very crisp on what you're out to uh, accomplish day one and sticking to it is is key. And it's easy to say, but it's very hard to do when you're actually trying to do it. So, Awesome. Lots of really, really good content and thoughts there. Boris, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Of course. My pleasure. Thank you, Mike. Thanks to the Marantis team for helping to organize the interview. Transcription and episode audio can be found on opensourceunderdogs.com. Music from Brooke for Free and Chris Zabriskie. Audio editing by Inez Satenji. Production assistance and transcription by Natalie Lau. Operational support from William Lau. If you have feedback or comments, tweet at us. Our Twitter handle is at FOSS Podcast. That's F-O-S-S Podcast. If you're a fan of the show and you listen on iTunes, please leave us five stars and a comment. That helps us get the words out to others. Next week, we interview Peter Mattis, one of the founders of CockroachDB. Until then, thanks for listening.